We are starting the last chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 16. The, we approach here the finish line, the end of a journey that has taken us some time. Uh, chapter 16 is quite a bit different than uh, the rest of the book. So we're just going to start this morning in the first two verses, Romans 16 verses 1 and 2, and talk about Phoebe. So hear then the Word of God. Paul writes, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. She is a servant of the church at Sencrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints, and that you would help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. The Word of God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we come this morning to you. We come to you. We would sit at your feet and learn of you. We want to know and understand your word, that we may conform our minds and our hearts and our faith and our practice to it. And so in these brief words this morning, would you speak to us? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? For we ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paul closes his letter, this last chapter, with a very personal section. It's probably the most personal piece of literature that we have from the pen of Paul in the Scripture, in any of his letters. It's not, uh, it's not explicit teaching. It's not what he's been doing throughout the entire book. Uh, there's no explicit teaching, but there are a lot of names. He names a lot of people, gives some personal information. And it's not insignificant here that as Paul moves into this section, it is this, this most personal and intimate chapter that he begins by commending a woman. Our sister, he says in verse 1, I recommend to you, our sister, Phoebe. Now, I want to take her separate from the, the, the rest of the list because of what Paul says about her. And to just focus on her this morning, next week we'll, we'll focus on, I think, 24 names. Uh, but this week we're going to do one name. Um, so verse 1, and one of the reasons is, is because verse 1 has created a, a certain amount of debate or been a part of a certain amount of debate in the life of, of the church, of a number of denominations. Created a bunch of debate because Paul calls her there in the first verse, at the end of the first verse, he calls her a servant of the church in Sencrea. And the word there is where he says a servant of the church, the word translated servant here in the ESV, uh, and the word underneath it is diakonos, uh, deaconess, or deacon. So, Paul mentions, um, and so this verse is often quoted in, in debate, and so a lot of the sermon, what I'm going to do is just drill down into that section and put this verse in, in context of the rest of Scripture to understand what Paul is saying at this point. So Paul mentions some, I think, 33 people in the course of this chapter. Some of them represent groups. So he talks about a lot of people. Um, but he talks about uh, uh, Phoebe here, and she's sort of set apart because she comes first, and she's commended to the church, which means she's traveling to the church, and, and he commends her to them as she comes. In verses 3 to 16, we're going to see he lists some 24 other people. And those people are all in Rome, people that he is greeting in Rome. In verses 21 to 24, toward the end, he lists eight people. Those are people with him in Corinth. 
that he sends their greetings. And so you've got this list of people he's talking to there, and a list of people that are with him. Uh, but Phoebe stands apart as one here at the beginning who is arriving in Rome, and he commends her to them and, and asks them to receive her in a way that is worthy of the saints as someone that he sends. And so it's almost certain that Phoebe delivered the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. Uh, it's almost certain that is she is the one in, in all of this who is commended to them in the letter is that she's the one carrying it. She's from Sancria, which is the eastern port of Corinth. Greece has a, comes down into an isthmus, a narrow strip of land that comes into another area. And Corinth sits on the, eastern, or the western side of that isthmus. So if you're going to Rome, you would leave from Corinth and go west to Rome. But if you're going anywhere east, in fact, Acts tells us Paul did it once. He left from Sancria to go east to Asia Minor or Syria or into uh, Israel. So it's, it's Sincrea is sort of a sister port or even, even the eastern part of the city of Corinth. And there's probably a daughter church there and Phoebe's part of it. And Paul expresses then as he commends Phoebe to the church, he, he expresses a family connection and intimacy with her. He calls her his sister. He says, our sister, Phoebe, my sister. And in that sense, we're all Christians, right? We are all followers of Christ. We're citizens together of his kingdom and servants together of King Jesus. But our relationship is more than that. And Paul touches on that, and as it does in many places here, that we all share the same father. And so that we have all become brothers and sisters in a family, a real family, a spiritual family, in the family of God. Brothers and sisters. Now, it's true for many of us that we are just as close, sometimes closer, to our church family, to our Christian brothers and sisters, than we are to our biological family. Sometimes we are just as close, sometimes closer, depending on our families, to our brothers and sisters in Christ as we are to our biological families in our shared love for the Lord. As our Father together, even as we have gathered in our shared worship, right, in our shared ministry and service together, there are bonds as we share life together, as we pray for and care for and visit one another and make meals for each other and all the ways that we are in ministry and in life together, we are indeed brothers and sisters. Phoebe is clearly a trusted sister in Christ, someone who is important to Paul, she, he says by the end of verse 2 that, that she supported and served him personally and directly, and he in turn is entrusting what may be the most important letter ever written to Phoebe to deliver to the church. So as we get to the debate, the, the debate is fairly simple. It's found in the simple commendation of Phoebe there at the end or of verse 1, I commend you our sister Phoebe. She's a servant or a deaconess of the church at Sancria. Right? And so he calls her diakonos. It's the same word that's translated elsewhere as deacon. And so it raises a question. Or at least it has for a lot of folks. Or a lot of people point to this verse and say, well, Phoebe is called a deaconess. And so 
we get down to the question of who can serve in the office of deacon. Now, a lot of denominations, like ours, like the PCA, reserve uh, the office of elder and deacon and, and believe that it's limited to men by the Scriptures. And so, if you didn't know that about our church, the first thing you would learn in HPC 101, perhaps, is, is we do believe in the offices of elder and deacon are reserved for men in the church. So we need to answer the question, how can we believe that if Phoebe is called a deaconess? And how do we answer that question? So I want to put this word, deacon, deaconess, diakonos, in a broader context of biblical usage. To understand the word and its usage in the New Testament uh, as part of what I want to do in this sermon. And so I'm going to arrange a little bit of field as we then take this word and put it in broader context. And so we're going to sort of branch out a little bit of field to drill down on this word and to understand how Paul can use it the way he does and for our church to believe what we do. So first, diakonos is a common word. It's a word that was used very generally in, in, uh, in the Greek language of the time and even in the Bible. It's used, it has a general meaning uh, that means servant, which is why here it's, it, it is translated as servant, where other places they transliterate it as the word deacon, which represents the office. And so there is a, a translation choice to be made of how we translate the word, because the word can just mean servant. We borrowed the word to designate it as an office. Right? So a word that was in common usage and continues in common usage also, put a capital D on it, refers to an office and is put next to elder in the teaching. So the word does not always refer to the office. It's simply used to mean servant. And the only way to know which one it is is the context. And the context helped us to understand which way it's being used. For example, I'll give just a couple examples then of the word being used elsewhere. In John chapter 2, it's a story of uh, Jesus turning water into wine. It's a whole sermon there. But there, he's turning it in, and so his mom is, is, is talking to him about it. And she says this to him. Uh, his mother, Mary, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Right? And he tells them to go get a bunch of big things and fill them with water so he could turn them into wine. Right? But she says to the servants, the word there is diakonos. Right? And it's clear in the context, this isn't the office of deacon. These aren't deacons, you know, the church hasn't even been established yet. There is no office to designate to them, so to speak. And it's clear they're just household servants. And he calls them diakonos, right? So the word has that broad meaning. It's used, Paul uses it in Romans in that way. In Romans chapter 13, if we back up a couple of chapters, he uses the same word to describe secular government rulers, Right? So in chapter 13, verse 4, he says, For he, this is that section on, on the government, he, the magistrate or a secular ruler in the government, for he is God's diakonos for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the diakonos of God. He is a servant of God. Right? So the word has this broad meaning. We're clear he's not calling the secular magistrates and rulers, governors, deacons. It's not the office. And so we see this, the word is used more generally. This is the same is true for apostle, if you didn't know that. Apostle, 
uh, is a common word in Greek, and it's used often in, in their language in a very common way. It simply means someone who is sent uh, or a messenger. And so it's used in the Bible, and it's used in Greek culture in a very general way. But then we know that at some point, we designate some people, capital A, apostles, and there are 12. And there is a context in which we use it. But, but the word has a broader meaning, and you'll find it in Scripture. One place, Philippians 2.25 says, I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. He's a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, and your apostle, and minister to my need. But it's clear in the context it has nothing to do with the office of apostle. When Paul says, God made me an apostle, and there's a capital A, and there's 12 of them. It's just a common verb or noun that gets used. So all that is to say, you know, diakonos is a commonly used word. Only the context will tell us which one is meant, just the general idea of a servant, or whether he's referring to the office. And only the context can tell us. So second, Paul is in this section, as I've said also, that he's moved on from teaching now, and, and he is not teaching in this area, in this part of this chapter 16. Um, he's simply describing and commending, right? It's not the section on where, he, where he's been, you can just step back into the previous champ, chapters, where he's teaching, and it's clear he's laying out how things are and what they mean. And he gets here and he says, I commend to you my sister Phoebe, she's a servant in the church. And he just goes on. In other words, he uses the word, but he's not teaching. He's describing. Phoebe is our sister, a servant of the church, and a patron. A helper. So the context is not conclusive. In other words, literally the context tells us nothing. It just gives her the label. So we have to look elsewhere. An important rule of interpretation, if you hadn't heard it before, is that there are, there are places in Scripture that are more obscure or less clear than others. If you haven't figured that out, you'll find those places. We're like, what does he mean here? And one of the rules of interpretation is that if there are places where he is, the Scripture speaks clearly to something, that we use those places where he speaks clearly to interpret those places that are less clear. Right? And this would be one of those. It's not clear. He uses the word, but it's not clear. Could he mean the office? Could he be calling her a deacon? Or is he just saying? There are other places that we can go, which is what I want to do next. Paul clearly teaches about church offices and the roles of men and women in the church in many places that might shed light, that do, does shed light on what he is saying in this section. So I want to briefly examine and talk about the qualifications for elder and deacon and look at a couple of those passages. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3 and Titus 1. And I'm going to start with elder and one of the reasons is that the, the qualifications for both offices are laid out side by side. He gives elder than deacon. He does it in, in Timothy and in Titus, the, the qualifications for elder and deacon. And there are a lot of overlap in them. A man, uh, you know, who is trustworthy and honorable, someone who has a good reputation and, um, <clears throat> and uh, is a husband of one wife. These things, they overlap. He uses the same language for both offices in many places. And so we see places like 1 Timothy 3.2, where it says an overseer, which is an elder. You hear about that in the HPC 101 too, if you want to get that. An overseer is an elder. You know, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach. This is said of both offices. And the husband of but one wife. And the word for husband is masculine, and it means husband, and the word for wife, and wife. And so the, so the elder 
must be a husband of but one wife, and part of the, that particular office is able to teach. If you back up right before this in chapter 2, where chapter 2 ends, that's the first couple of verses of chapter 3. Chapter 2, right before he says this, immediately before he says this, he says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, ostensibly, that is to, to not teach or to, to, to speak authoritatively over, and that's what it means, not that they can't talk. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So for those who hold that women can hold the office, they'll say when you get to this passage here, that's just a culturally bound statement. That's not a, Paul doesn't mean that for all time. There, Timothy is, an, uh, is a pastor in Ephesus, and in Ephesus they had a problem with the cult of Diana. You know, there's these things that are going on. They're women, they run that cult, and so it's confusing with women in the church. And so Paul is simply saying something to the church in, in Ephesus at that time uh, about women and how they, they should, this is how it should go down so that it doesn't confuse things with the cultural situation going on around you in Ephesus. So they'll just say, that's not a rule for all time. The problem I have with that, and I give you the full statement, is the statement that remains on the screen now, is it, it would be a perfect opportunity for him to say, do it this way because it would be, it's confusing not to. Like to tell them why he's telling them to do this. If this is something that is, that is only for you at this time and isn't to be taken too seriously anywhere else or anybody else who reads this, he wouldn't give that reasoning. Like, hey guys, you know, because of this situation. But he does not ground it in the cultural situation in Ephesus. He grounds it in creation. When he explains why he is giving this rule to the church, he says, this is the way God did it in creation. Creation is not something that is culturally or time-bound. You couldn't ground it any firmer in something in Scripture other than the created order, what God did and how he did it in the beginning. He made the male and female. He made them a certain way. And these are the things that we stand on now with all the gender confusion and fluidity. We go to Genesis and say, this is the created order. This is how God did it. This is the way he established it from the beginning of time. His purpose woven into the very fabric of creation. And when Paul says, this is the role of men and women in the church, and then he grounds it where Adam was created first and then Eve, I I did it a certain way. I created it a certain way with a certain purpose. So in Titus, he says a similar thing. Elders in every town, establish, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, and again, you have that, they need to be above reproach, and the husband of one wife. The office of elder. But he says the same thing about deacons. Now, there's little debate among evangelical Reformed churches about the office of elder. Uh, we, we pretty much largely agree on passages like these that reserve the office of elder. There's a little more room for debate on deacon because of verses like this um, and a couple of other things, but there's less consensus there. 
Some of us think Paul is clear on deacon as well. Others think there's more ambiguity, and they leave room for debate. And so there is debate. But in 1 Timothy 3, 11 and 12, after he gives the qualifications for elder, he says, let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So the same thing that was said of elders. Their wives likewise should be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be the husband of but one wife. Again, same qualification as an elder on that ground, uh, managing their children and their households well. So it seems in some ways that it would be obvious, but there's ambiguity in these verses too. And this is why there is still debate, right? So when you see the middle verse there, he says, let them serve as deacons and be blameless. The word translated wives there, there is ambiguity, ambiguity again in the Greek. They use the same word for woman as they do for wife. And the context will tell you whether that woman is a wife. And he's referring to her as a a wife. And so in this verse where most of us will read it and hear as he's been teaching since the middle of chapter 2, let them serve as deacons and prove themselves that their wives should also be blameless and the deacon should be the husband of but one wife. Others will say that it's not saying wives here. It actually just says women Let the women likewise be dignified. And then they're saying that when it just speaks to women generally, that that, that this opens the office to them, that he's speaking to, to deaconesses because of the ambiguity of the word. So that we have two ambiguous words that leave the debate open on deacon, where for most of us it's not open on the office of elder at all. Our denomination and myself believe the text is clear and that the office is reserved for men and that Phoebe is a servant of the church and not an officer in the church and that the creational order is clearly taught for the church here. It's mirrored. What, what, what is taught here, the creational order is mirrored in the home as well as in the church. And there's a mirror in the way that this creative creational order is taught We see it in Ephesians chapter 5. The husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. There's a parallel. Again, that headship is not, it's Ephesus. Maybe it's the stuff going on in Ephesus. It's just cultural. But where does Paul ground it? He parallels it to Christ in the church, not the culture. Right? And so there is a creational order, he says, in the home that is mirrored in the church. He says a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 11. I want you to understand. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. He says he wants understanding. He wants the church to get it. There's a creational order of things that the church should understand, as he says. Now, there's whole sermons here, and I've I've done some of them. You can go back. I've done a marriage series, and we talked about this, you know, in terms of the role of a husband, because Ephesians also says a husband should love his wife as Christ loved the church. He doesn't lord it over us, and he loves us, and he serves us, and he saves us, and he gives all things to us, and he supports us, and all the ways that, that what of a godly husband is meant to be, not lording it over, not using his authority in ways that are abusive. But he wants us to understand, he says, that there's a creational order of things. So as we go back to verses uh, 1 and 2, here in chapter 16, at the end of verse 1, he calls Phoebe a servant. But then in verse 2, he describes her service. 
So it doesn't even leave. So I do think there is something in the context that tells us what her service is. What is it that Paul commends about her service? And in the end two, end of verse 2, he describes her as a patron. He says that she, uh, you know, Phoebe, she's a servant of the church. Welcome her in a way that's worthy. Give her what she needs because, for, because she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. And that word patron, and that, that's her service. She's been a patron. You know, she's a servant of the church, receiver, because this is how she has served. She has been a patron in the church to many people and myself as well. The word patron has very specific ideas. It's a word that we're uh, familiar with in many ways. It's somebody who renders assistance. We're familiar with patronage. If you hear somebody say, oh, he's a patron of the arts, right? It means that he, that he supports and often or usually involves the idea of money, uh, that they support the arts and the advancement of the arts and the strength of the arts in, its, in, in the community, right? And so as a patron, it's someone who supports worthy causes, usually with finances. Phoebe says, says that Phoebe was a patron to many in the church, and he says, and to me myself. Paul was a, a missionary, and he traveled from town to town to town, and he did a little tent making on the side to support himself, but he makes clear that there are churches and people who support him. Jesus did it the same way. It says there was a group of women who, had, who were saved. I didn't put the verse in here, but who got saved under Jesus' ministry, and who also traveled with them, along with the 12 apostles. There were, there were women who had said supported them in their ministry, financially backed them, and were a part of their ministry. The patron is an honorable title. Uh, it highlights generosity and service, in, in, in particularly as it says in the church. And so Phoebe is a patron, right? And this is why she's called a servant of the church. Paul defines her service. And given Paul's description here, there's no need or warrant to assume she held ecclesiastical office. If we have teaching elsewhere that clearly teaches, if you believe it is clear, that it is reserved for men. And though male deacons may lead and serve in the church, what this makes clear is that we need godly women to come alongside and assist in the ministry and to support the ministry and to be a part of the ministry. It's ladies who led and serve. It's ladies who lead and serve in many of the ministries in our church. Right, if you, we look around, there's a meals ministry, there's a visitation ministry that is all run, organized, and done. It's, it's mercy ministry like and underneath what the deacons are called to do, but it's, it is women who are involved in it and doing it. There's women who are running and serving in a refugee ministry, in our women's ministry, in our children's ministry, in the American Heritage Girls, and who help out in some of the other ministries and take leadership positions. And we'll come back to that at the end. Well, I guess we'll come back to it right now. This is the end. <laughs> I'm looking and seeing, oh, that's, that's the last point right here. As I said, it is debatable, perhaps, whether our denomination gets it right when we reserve the office of, of deacon as well as elder uh, to men. It, it may be debatable. There are times even within our denomination it's debated. I think we do get it right. I respect those who disagree uh, with me. They're, we should humbly recognize that along the way, we, all of us are going to get something wrong. 
Um, and maybe it is here. I believe that it is clear. I believe that the Bible is clear on this point. The denomination is correct on this point, And we happily um, you know, serve in, in harmony with our denomination's teaching. But what should be important to all of us is to see godly women leading and serving in the life of the church. And that's where I want to leave in the final note. And the note that I think we get from Phoebe is not about church offices, but, but, but a strong, solid, good note is the bearer of the most important letter ever written, a trusted sister in Christ whom Paul sends with the letter to the church in Rome. And that we need to, I think it should be important to all of us, whatever your view is on elder and deacon and those things, what is important to all of us is to see godly women leading and serving in the life of the church. And I believe that women can do anything that an unordained man can do. And for me, that opens up the the whole landscape of of life and ministry in the church. And you see it in our church. Uh, The ministry that is taking place and the involvement of of women with our men, despite the limitations in, in office. There's a sense in which every Christian is a deacon. In the sense that Phoebe's called one. She's a deacon of the church. I would hope in that general sense, every one of us could have it said of you, if I were writing about you or commending you, that you are a diakonos in the church, that you are a servant of Christ's church, and that that would be true of every single Christian. God-ordained offices are important in the life of the church. I've been doing it long enough that I believe they are just absolutely crucial to the health and life of the church. But we also need, I think, need to recognize and to be careful to not make them all important. They're a vital part of the church, but we must not make them all important to fix on them too much. There's a vast need for leadership in the church well beyond elders and deacons, well beyond the offices. The church needs feminine leadership and involvement in every area of our ministry. And in most things that we do, we try to involve women in it. When we have a nominating committee, we want to put women on it. If we have a search committee, we want to put women on it. If we're dealing with church discipline, we often ask some women to come alongside and to help us. Because you have insights and gifts and and ways that you can come alongside us and and help us to do it better. When we ground the differences in creation, we need to make sure that we also notice that the the commonalities are also grounded in creation. So I remind us of Genesis chapter 1 where it says in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Men and women, both the image bearers of God. And the church needs both to be healthy in its masculine and its feminine. The New Testament makes clear that men and women have an equal standing before God as sons and daughters. He calls as brothers and sisters of the same father. And he makes it clear that together we're adopted together, gifted together, and have that sonship and standing, daughtership and standing before God together. In Galatians 3.28, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, because you're all one in Christ. Because you're all one. And Paul here, he's not saying that, he's not, this is not gender fluidity here. 
He's not doing away with masculinity and femininity, just like he's not doing away with Jew or Greek. There are Jews and there are Greeks. And there are people who were slaves and there are people who were free. Those categories didn't go away. He's not abolishing the categories. He is making the point that in our relationship before God, in our salvation, in our adoption, we are utterly equal. There's neither male nor female. None none of those distinctions matter. so to speak, in our standing before God. I'll give an example, whether it helps you or not, I'll try. Um, That just because there are different offices doesn't mean that we're of unequal gifting or value. Just because there are different roles that God gives us doesn't mean we're of different, less or more value. One of the things, you can just go to biology, where women can have babies and men can't. You know, and it's not because one is better or one is worse or one is this. or one. It's just the roles God assigned in creation were different. And it's not a matter of that kind of thing. And these kind of role differences are not a matter of, of value or worth or need or necessity. Both are, in, 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 in having children, both are absolutely necessary. And God created it that way. And, and so we have police in, in our society. I'm going to try to use this as another one. You, Police are important. They're given a role. And with that role comes authority. And with that authority means they can do things that I can't. Right? So in our society, there's, there's a role differentiation. He's a policeman. I'm not. He can pull me over. He can give me a ticket. He can arrest me. He can do a lot of things that I can't do. He's given authority. He has a role. But even in having that role doesn't mean he's better than me or smarter than me. Right? And sometimes we... Sometimes that's obvious, right? But it's just saying, sorry. <laughs> Sometimes they are, but my, my point is that having the role doesn't make him, them better than we are or smarter than we are. And that's what I'm saying is, what I'm trying to say is this. Women are as smart as men. <laughs> women are as gifted as men, right, it, before God. They are equal before God, and they are as smart as men. They are as gifted as men, and the role differences does not say anything different. Women have taught me as much as any man about a sacrificial, my, my own wife has taught me as much about a sacrificial servant's heart uh, in serving and leading in the church of Christ than, than, than any man has, that we see this. Phoebe, so this is the compliment, Phoebe is presented as an extremely capable woman She's probably a businesswoman when it talks about, you know, help her in whatever matter that she may need your help. It's pragmatized. It, it can be used of business and other kinds of things. She may have business in Rome. So that here is this woman traveling to Rome on business, bearing Paul's letter. She is presented as an extremely capable, trustworthy businesswoman traveling the world, supporting and serving the church and Paul and serving in the life of the church. And whether Phoebe held office or not, it's obvious that she held a significant role in the life and the ministry of the church and in the heart of Paul. Paul's commendation of Phoebe as a servant reminds us of the broad, rich, important role for women in the church. Paul presents Phoebe to the church in Rome as someone who is important to him and is a trusted leader in the church who should be honored and received that way. 
Ligon Duncan and Susan Hunt, they wrote a book together on women in ministry and coming out of there. What I'm describing is the complementarian view of men and women, different roles, equal in honor in all other ways, but having different roles. It's the complementary view, I'm going to read about it, as opposed to the egalitarian rule, which breaks it down and says men and women can do everything, that all the offices are open to women as well. It's egalitarian, they can do be elders and deacons and everything else. That view is out there. We hold this complementary view. Here's what they say. The complementarian position acknowledges that God created men and women equal in being, but assigned different, but equally valuable functions in his kingdom. And that his gender distinctiveness complements and harmonizes to fulfill his purpose. Complementarians believe that the Bible teaches that God has created men and women equal in essential dignity in human personhood, but different and complementary in their function. God has made us different. He has given certain functions and roles to men and certain functions and roles to women, but they are distinct. All of this is to say the church needs strong, gifted, theologically grounded, servant-hearted women to lead and to serve in the life of the church if we're going to be a strong and healthy and vibrant church. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. And though it is not always as clear as we would like it to be, it is a gift to us. And what we want to do, Lord, is to labor hard to understand it and to be faithful to it. Even where we disagree, we disagree because we read your word and we love your word and we want to live your word and to be faithful and obedient to your word. And I pray that in that, Father, you would give us conviction and passion. But I pray, Father, that ours would be a fellowship where all of us labor together arm in arm, seeking to pursue the glory of your name and the advancing of your kingdom and the preaching of your gospel and the exercising of ministry and grace as a community and that men and women would find great freedom to use their gifts and to bless the church in the ways that you have designed. For we ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.